Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. We start with Amos chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Let's read Amos 5, 14 and 15. God is speaking, seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy, perhaps. He'll have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And then over in Amos chapter 7, verses 7 to 9, this is what God showed me. Amos is speaking now. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. So for the last six months, uh, we have constantly been reminded that injustice exists in our society, and people act like they're shocked and surprised by it. But the truth is it exists in every society. Don't let people with an evil agenda make you think that somehow injustice is unique to America. It's not. It's present in every culture now, as it always has been. This morning, we're not going to talk about injustice. We're not going to talk about the merits of making wrongs right, except to say this. It's impossible to have social justice without God. It's impossible, because you see, justice implies a judge. And in order to judge rightly, there must be a standard of right and wrong by which it gets judged. Right is rewarded, wrong is punished. So at its core, this is justice. And without an unbiased and unchanging standard of what's right and wrong, you can't have justice. You cannot remove God from a society and expect to have justice. So if there's anything this nation is guilty of, it's not injustice, it's removing God from society. This is why God showed Amos a plumb line. He holds the plumb line. And notice that God held it up, hold it up, held it up against a plumb wall. I, I believe that the line is God's standard of right and wrong. He held it up. And the wall is actually Jesus Christ. God's saying, this is what plumb looks like. And when he takes the line and he holds it up against his people, we are woefully crooked. Many people have quoted the book of Amos in the last six months, but they've quoted it wrong. They love statements like the one we read in chapter 5, hate evil, love good, maintain justice. They love Amos chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's not as famous as the other two quotes, but Amos 6, 12 is in the same company. He says, do horses run on rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. These are great statements. And they're super quotable. Like, post them on your wall, and you're going to get a lot of likes. The problem is that when you draw them out of their context, you can easily think that all God cares about is justice. But what I want to show you today from, ancient, from Amos' ancient sermons is that injustice is only the fruit of the problem. This might surprise you, but God is not going to judge America or any other nation because they're unjust. Injustice is the fruit. It's not the root. And God always goes after the root. 
like Amos's contemporaries, injustice is an obvious problem. But it's not the reason why God was going to bring judgment upon them, nor is it why God is bringing judgment upon America. Would you like to know what the root? Would you like to know what the root of injustice is? To do this, we're going to answer three big questions from Amos today. There's so much in this little book, and we're not going to cover it all, but my hope, my hope is to just survey it in order to kind of grab the main heart of the message of what Amos is preaching. And here's what he's saying. I'll just sum, I'll give it to you right up front. Bad worship leads to bad living. For this, the responsibility falls upon the people of God. We cannot expect the culture to fear God if the church has lost her fear of God. As the apostle said, judgment, Peter said this, judgment begins with the household of God. So if we respond properly, then we can stave the hand of God, perhaps, from judging this nation and bringing it to utter ruin. It begins here. So the three questions that we're going to answer this morning is this. First, who was Amos? And, and to whom was he preaching? It's always helpful to color in the lines a little bit and get some of the background so we can get the sense for the message that he's preaching. The second question, what right does God have to judge? And the third question we're going to answer is, is there any way I can avoid it? Is there any way to stop this train? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, you know, Lord, that this... Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of repentance. Give us the gift of repentance. Lord, I pray that you would right the wrongs in our own souls. And I pray this morning for a spirit of humility that rather than shifting blame or excusing, that, Lord, we fall to our knees and we tremble before you, the holy God of the universe. And we seek your face. And we find forgiveness, not in feeling better about ourselves, but we find forgiveness from your hand of mercy. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So who was Amos, and to whom was he preaching? Amos, first of all, Amos is a very important prophet because he's the first of the written prophets. It's not to say that he's the first prophet in Israel's history. Um, You got Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, they came before Amos did, but Amos is the first prophet to actually write a book. And so as such, that makes Amos's writing very influential in the prophetic world because some of the other written prophets, they copied some of Amos's techniques and things. And you see some of the similarities, you know, between the different prophetic books, and you realize they're basically taking Amos's cue in a sense. So that makes Amos important for that reason. But second, look how Amos begins in Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king in Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. So Amos was a shepherd, shepherd from this spot called Tekoa. This is a a rough and tumble desert-like region in the southern part of Judah that stretched along the banks of the Dead Sea. And he's a shepherd down there in this craggy, God-forsaken sort of place, really. Israel, as a nation, reached its zenith under the rule of David's son, King Solomon. But after Solomon's death, as you, many of you know, the nation of Israel had a civil war that split her into two factions. So the north retained the name Israel, the south, retained, the south took on the name Judah. And we find that 
Amos is a shepherd in Tekoa in Judah. So he's a southern boy. And though the text does not tell us this, Israel had two kings that went by the name Jeroboam. The Jeroboam referenced here is Jeroboam II. And Amos gives us a time stamp. He says that he wrote two years before the earthquake, during the reigns of these two kings. Now, historians like this kind of thing because you can cross-check it, and you can pinpoint exactly when Amos lived. It's awesome. And we discover that Amos lived during a time of prosperity and security in both Israel and Judah. At this point, the big threat on the global political stage was the empire of Assyria. But during Amos' time, Assyria was weakened because it was going through its own political infighting. So this took a little bit of the pressure off some of the smaller nations like Judah and Israel. And with the extra breathing room, Judah and Israel were able to increase their trade, increase their prosperity, and they began to feel a sense of security because the heat was off. In fact, Amos chapter 3, verse 15 alludes to their wealth. God speaks about their fancy houses. He says, I will tear down their winter house along with their summer house. The house adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions demolished, says the Lord. So they're feeling pretty fat and sassy. They all had the uh, life is good bumper sticker on the back of their camels. You know, they're just having a good time. Now, the Bible does not spell this out, but you can imagine that Amos, so he's a southern boy, you can imagine Amos coming into contact with the northern cities like Samaria and Bethel as he brought wool from his flock to sell. He'd take it up to these big cities to sell his wool. And Amos is not a preacher. He tells us this in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. You see it there in your Bible? Amos is preaching, and this priest from Bethel, a guy by the name of Amaziah, tells Amos to stop preaching. And Amos, it says, answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So you see what you got? You got this kind of backwoods shepherd who trimmed trees on the side. And he's probably taking his wool up to Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel. And, and Amos is appalled by what he sees going on there. The name Amos means burden bearer. And Amos carried quite a burden. What does Amos see? Well, chapter 2, verse 6, to whom is Amos preaching? He says, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on heads of poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. The problem here is that you have a system of taxation that favors the political class. You ever noticed how politicians make rules that apply to us but not to them? It's not a new problem. Most people back then were farmers who depended upon their land to live. And as a way to pay their taxes, these farmers would have to go into debt at times with the ruling class, and then they would become stuck. And their cries for help went ignored. In some cases, the taxation only increased. Amos mentions the selling of the needy for a pair of sandals. Can you imagine a society that's so callous that when the poor can't pay, they're actually made to give the shoes off their own feet as payment? In addition to this, you've got sexual perversion as a problem. Father and son use the same girl. This is disgusting. It's a reference to temple prostitution. It was a common practice in pagan worship rituals. The problem is that Amos sees that the people of God are not only doing it, not only approving of it, but they've actually incorporated this practice into their worship of Yahweh. You know, it's one thing for the world to be perverted. It's quite another for the people of God to do it as worship. But before we judge the Israelites, 
We need to search our own souls. How many of us see no problem with homosexuality? How many of us see nothing wrong with a couple who lives together? We have parents who have allowed their teenagers to actually have sex with their girlfriend and boyfriends in your own basement. Think nothing of it. Nary a twinge of conviction. We justify it by claiming that God is gracious and he just wants us to be happy. No remorse, no sorrow, no inkling that what you're thinking, what you're believing, what you're endorsing or even doing is wrong. And God better not demand too much or you'll stop coming. Let's just flaunt our sin in God's face and how long do we do this before he judges it? You look at Amos chapter 4. <laughs> he sees these drunken, aristocratic women fattened on their fine dining, oppressing the poor, and demanding that their husbands, their henpecked husbands, bring them more booze. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. Now, Samaria is the capital city of Israel. He says, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. These are the uh, desperate wives of Samaria, I suppose you could call. <laughs> Quite a picture, isn't it? Remember, Amos is not a professional preacher. He's, uh, he he's just says it like he sees it, and maybe he is a little rough around the edges. But what he's speaking to is a political class of pampered women who show no concern for the negative impact that their opulent lifestyle has on others. Amos chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, he says, you levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. And I wonder if Amos even witnessed this when he was trying to sell wool in the marketplace, if maybe he experienced some of the high taxes as a small businessman. Therefore, he says, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Hmm. Have you ever noticed how some who have the right connections seem to get away with murder, but the rest of us are held accountable for every misdeed? That's injustice. Taxes keep going up. People's businesses are getting shut down. And as bad as all of this is, it's not the worst thing that Israel was doing. Believe it or not, not the worst thing that we're doing. Here's the root of the problem. You ready? Amos chapter 4. After he calls out these well-fed women in Samaria, we read this. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal, sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering. Brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. Bethel and Gilgal were iconic religious sites. And Amos sarcastically tells them, go there and just keep on sinning. Go to church, put a few bucks in the plate, brag about how wonderful you are. In essence, that's what he's saying. In Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, he says, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over and that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself, the pride of Jacob. I will not forget anything they have done. Does that send a shiver down your spine? It does mine. These people are not lacking in religious observance. They're very religious. They, they make pilgrimages to important places. Uh, they donate money. They observe religious festivals like the new moon or the Sabbath, yet they can't wait for it to be over so they can go out and live as they please and keep ripping each other off. The problem, you see, was that they believed their prosperity was the blessing of God. They reasoned this way, I'm prosperous, which means I'm blessed, which means my life is pleasing to God. I'm prosperous, which means I'm blessed, 
I must be pleasing to God. So they saw no reason to change anything. We make the same wrong assumption. Life is going well. We're all happy. Our church is nice. Our kids are nice. Our lifestyle is comfortable. Therefore, we must be blessed by God and on the right track. We don't ever stop to take time to think about. But like cancer, sin lies beneath the surface of our lives, and it's killing us slowly. In Amos chapter 4, verses 6 to 12, you can see it. God tried to get his people's attention. He withheld rain. He struck their gardens with blight. He sent plagues. He sent plagues, like perhaps COVID. Yet Amos chapter 4, verse 11, God, I believe speaking with a big lump in his throat, says, yet you have not returned to me. If, if a year like 2020 will not shake us up and bring us to repentance, what will? Is there any hope for us? We cry for a return to normal, but what if our normal is grieving the heart of God? What if, what if our normal was building up and building up and testing the patience of God? Like contrary to everything you've been taught or assumed, God's goal is not to make you happy. Tragically, so many of our preachers, including this one, our prophets and our songwriters have conveyed this message. And so here's what God has to say about our church meetings. Buckle up. Amos chapter 5, verse 21 to 24. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring me choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. See, at first glance, you can read the scripture and, and you can think that God is saying, I hate your church services because of all the injustice. But that's actually not what God's saying. You notice in your Bible that Amos chapter 5 is actually a lament. Verse 1 says so. If you look at Amos 5.1, it's a lament. In other words, it's a funeral sermon. And, and Amos is pretending to be the pastor, presiding over Israel's funeral. And he's speaking as though she's already dead. Verse 2, notice verse 2. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. See, he's, he's mourning her loss is what he's doing. And he speaks as though she's gone. But then in verse 4, he shifts and he brings it into the present tense. And he challenges Israel. And he says, this is what the Lord says. Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. He continues, seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them. God says, seek me. Seek me. Seek me, he says. Not, not your religious sites like Gilgal, Bethel, you know, but seek me, not your little meetings with harps and songs that you sing half-heartedly and then go out and live your own way anyway. God says, no, seek me. You see, you see their bad worship had led to bad living. Injustice was and is a problem, but it's only the fruit of the problem. It's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is they lacked the fear of God. So you see, in false religion, in false religion, God is worshipped as a way to elevate the worshiper. 
This is why idols are so attractive. In idolatry, it's the it's same as it was then, it's the, same, it's the same as it is now. In idolatry, I worship you and you do stuff for me. That's how idolatry works. I, I light you a sacrifice, I burn you something, and then you're supposed to make my crops grow great. You're supposed to give me lots of kids, you're supposed to give me lots of money. It's an I scratch your back, you scratch my back sort of arrangement. That's how idolatry works. That's false religion. God is worshipped as a way to elevate the worshiper. It's consumer Christianity. We have a word for that. I worship God and I go to church and I do things because God is going to do things for me. And when God stops doing things for me, that's when I bail out on God. We worship ourselves. Really? We're not worshiping the one who is worthy of all worship. Consider the thrust of many of our modern worship songs. The emphasis of the song is on how God makes me feel. God makes me strong. He makes me fearless. He makes me victorious. He makes me beloved. He makes me fulfilled. He makes me self-realized. We even have a song that spends half the song talking about it's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. Who am I worshiping? Who am I really worshiping? Our songs sound more like group therapy sessions than actual worship. Can I ask you a question? When was the last time you forgot about yourself in a worship service? You weren't thinking about what you looked like or sounded like or thinking about how other people were worshiping. You weren't standing there judging other people because they're not as into it as you are. Like literally, you forgot about yourself. You got lost in God's presence. When was the last time that happened? God says, seek me and live. That's what he says. Seek me. Don't seek yourself. Seek me and live. It's only in the seeking of God for himself that we capture the heart of God for the world. This is where this connects with justice. Because who or what we worship and how we worship them leads to how we live. True worship leads to the heart of God and then flows into a proper heart toward other people. Bad worship leads to injustice. Notice that righteousness and justice go together in Amos. Amos chapter 5 verse 24, and it's mentioned a few times in Amos. Righteousness and justice. This is Amos's way of expressing the two greatest commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. Righteousness is a right relationship with God. Justice is a right relationship with my neighbor. This is what Amos meant when he said, seek God and live. The genuineness of your worship is demonstrated in the way that you live. The two can't be separated. But you don't fix it you see, by suddenly being nice to people. The order is very important. Seek me, God says, and live. Which comes first? See, you fix it by repenting of your false ideas about God. You repent of your lousy, self-centered worship. You repent of the lazy way you approach his throne, and you repent for the myriad of excuses you give for why you're not more like Christ by now. This is why we can't remove God from the culture and expect to have justice. It's also why the first people to be judged are the people of God. Because if we don't have the fear of God, how can we possibly expect the world to have it? The world despises God because the church doesn't fear God. We've tamed God, we've domesticated him, we've castrated him, we've made him all about making us happy. We've lost sight of his holiness and we've forgotten to tremble at his greatness. And because we have failed, judgment looms. 
Go back to Amos chapter 7, verse 9, where God shows Amos the plumb line. Do you see what gets destroyed first in verse 9? Do you see what gets destroyed first after God draws out the plumb line? The first to get destroyed are the high places, the houses of worship, the sanctuaries will be ruined, God says. Why? Because that's where the problem is. Listen, what happens in the White House doesn't matter. It's what happens in God's house that truly matters. We come, and this brings us to our second question. What right does God have to judge? He must think he's God. This can be answered quickly in Amos. First, look at Amos chapters 1 and 2. This is kind of fun. Do you see that Amos begins his book by condemning Israel's neighbors? He starts in verse 3 with a judgment against Damascus. And then verse 6, a judgment against Gaza. Verse 9, it's against Tyre. Verse 11, it's against Edom. Verse 13, it's against Ammon. In chapter 2, verse 1, it's against Moab. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, it's actually against Judah which is Israel's southern half, <laughs> Amos' own homeland. What's going on? Why would Amos start his book by condemning all of Israel's neighbors? Well, remember that Amos is writing and he's preaching to Israel. These are all of Israel's neighbors, most of whom are also Israel's enemies. Amos begins this way for two reasons. First, it gets Israel's attention. Come on, God's condemning our enemies? Sweet. Who would want to pay attention to that? So it's a great way to get their attention. And about the time that Israel's feeling smug and self-righteous because God's going after their enemies, <laughs> Amos then levels the boom in chapter 2, verse 6. For three sins, dramatic pause, dun, 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 dun. Israel. Ooh. It's a brilliant way to hook his audience. That's what Amos is doing. But there's another reason why he does this. Do you see how Amos uses this literary formula to begin each judgment? He says, for three sins, even for four. You see how he said it? He repeats it several times. This is a way for Amos to communicate the patience of God. God doesn't judge us for one sin, although he has every right to do that. But how many of you are thankful for his patience? I am. Aren't you glad he doesn't judge you for every sin? Oh, thank you, Jesus. But he has the right to do it. Don't forget he has the right to do it. But for three sins, he's patient. I overlooked that one. Pass by that one. We'll wait. Let's pass by that one. Let's give him another chance and another chance. There are repeated offenses. And they've piled up, the scales have begun to tip, and God's patience has run out. I wonder, friends, if we have committed the fourth sin that will tip the scales of wrath. And Amos reminds us that God is sovereign over all nations. God's not just some pet God of Israel. Oh, no, no. He sits as Lord above all all nations. And as the judge of all nations, God's the judge of our nation. That's partly what he's communicating there in chapters 1 and 2. And woven through the book of Amos, there's something else that he tells us. There's another reason why God has the right to judge. Woven through the book of Amos, there's an ancient hymn uh, that was sung at festivals, and it was popular with Amos's people. Amos broke it up into three parts, so if we're reading it on our own, we don't always, you know, you kind of, you can miss it easily, but basically, he builds his entire message around the three parts to this hymn, and, and each time it ends, each part ends with the same phrase, the Lord Almighty is his name. Let's just take a, a look at him. Amos chapter 4, verse 13, is verse 1 of the hymn. He says, He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. What's his name? The Lord God Almighty. In chapter 5, verse 8, 
the second verse, the second verse of the hymn. He says, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. What's his name? The Lord is his name. And then the final verse of the hymn is found in Amos chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sings like, sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. What's his name? The Lord is his name. Amos uses this familiar hymn, much like if I quoted this, if I said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I... See, you know it. You know it by heart, at least the first verse anyway. It's, a, it's familiar to you. And so if I were to write a book, I could maybe take the hymn, the verses of Amazing Grace and kind of build a whole sermon around those. That's what Amos does. He takes his hymn that all of his friends would have known. And the message of the hymn is this. God has the authority to judge. As the one who created it all, God has the right to destroy it all. If God can create it and God can contain it, then God can crush it. The hymn brings together God's creative power with his right and his ability to destroy it. You know, you can't read your Bible honestly and not think that God will judge. I mean, in Genesis chapter 7, we have the story of Noah and the great flood. We literally only made it seven chapters as a human race before God had to destroy us and start over again. You see, I mean, judgment is all through Scripture. A God with such credentials who presides over nations, who creates and destroys, who patiently overlooks failure after failure. Don't forget that. Patient God. This God has the right to demand both righteousness and justice. And if he doesn't get it, he has the right to destroy us. But there's good news in this hymn. If God can create and God can destroy, God can also recreate. It's implied, but it's there. If he can create and he can destroy, then he can also recreate. And in this, we find hope that if we repent, we will be restored. Let us evaluate our lives, friends, against the plumb line of Christ. Do you see how foolish it is to cry for justice in the streets when your relationship with God is in shambles? Do you see how you've tamed God, how you've tried to put God on your leash? You see how, how we've treated God like a prostitute. We flip him some money, sing him some songs, and he's supposed to make us feel better. Can I ask a hard question? What are we doing as a church that actually requires the power of God? Is it not true that we have created a Christianity that we can accomplish in our own strength and then we wonder why the world can't see our God? The responsibility for the proper worship of God, it falls on God's people. We cannot expect the culture to get this right. This is our job. The first step to solving injustice is realignment with authority. And this starts with God on top. It's our bad worship that has watered down who God really is and has led to the injustice in our culture. We've sold God as a pansy who's here to make us feel good. The reason why God's judgment is coming is not because society is unjust, but because God's people have grown cold. How do we escape it? Please listen. God does not take pleasure in judgment. It grieves him. This message is not easy for us to hear. 
But you need to know that it's not easy for God to give. He takes no delight in it. But as Amos reminded us, for three sins, even for four, God's patience has a limit. 2020 was a final warning. Our clamoring for normal reveals how much we're out of touch with God. Our bickering over politics has proven that we've lost sight of God. We've gone way off track. And God used Amos to warn his people, and they did not listen. Will we do the same? If God's people will not repent of our bad worship and return to a proper fear of the Lord, brace yourselves for impact. It's about to get worse. How do we escape it? Well, one thing is certain. We cannot escape judgment by staying the same. Like Amos' message requires a change. It requires it. We must repent. It's an old-fashioned word, but boy, is it a good one. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the apostle Peter replied to a similar question with this answer. Peter answered it this way, saying, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I love that. God has a gift as dirty as I am, as broken as I am, God has a gift. Yep, if I would repent, he has a gift. See, I repent. Repent means I turn away from. It means I turn away from it. I identify it and I reject it. And be baptized in Christ means I die to my old ways once and for all. You see that? Baptism is a symbol of death. I die to my old ways once and for all. I'm now a Jesus man. Own it. You're a Jesus girl. Own it. Embrace it. It's who you are. Stop messing around. It's who I am. I'm a Jesus guy. Make no apologies for it. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is talking to you about this morning. But I wonder, from what do we need to repent? I would humbly submit these. I repent for not preaching repentance. My preaching warms hearts. It's got to begin to change them. I repent for aligning myself with the political spirit that's ruining this nation, our churches, and our families. If, friends, if you've ever spoken the words, quote, you can't be a Christian and vote for blank, unquote, then you are also guilty of aligning yourself with this political spirit. You need to confess it as sin. You need to repent from it. You need to rebuke that thing from your life because it's absolutely destroying you, this church, the church, our nation. There's nowhere in your Bible that says who you vote for uh, determines your salvation. I mean, come on, let's not mix those two together. I repent from that. I repent from fear and calling it wisdom. The truth is, every one of us has been attacked by fear in 2020. There's not a single one of us that hasn't escaped it. But let's stop sugarcoating it. Let's admit it. You've been afraid. I repent. Let's not just, you know, pretend it's not there. You struggle with fear. I repent. But I also repent from judgmentalism. I've judged others whom I've accused of being fearful. This is a sin. I must repent. I repent of being a coward as a pastor and allowing people in this church to live in blatant immorality 
and not confront you for it. I repent of supporting perversion by the things I watch, the things I like on TV, the things I see on the internet, the things I laugh at to go along with, read. I repent. I repent of being a consumer Christian for expecting God to do what I want him to do rather than the other way around. Shouldn't I be the one that does what he wants to do? Who is God in this equation? I repent. I repent from the excuses I've used for why I'm not more like Christ by now. I repent of keeping one foot in the world and the other in Jesus. I repent. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Father, forgive us. I forgive us, Father. Forgive us. For these are many sins. But more than that, I pray, God, forgive us for acting like they really don't matter. Forgive us, Lord, for just pretending like they're really not all that big of a deal, for overlooking them. Forgive us, God, for the excuses we've made for ourselves. Like, rather than fall upon your grace and plead with you for mercy, Lord, we've just made excuses for ourselves. Father, forgive us. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.